Dear loved ones who come to meditate on the passion of Christ tonight, may you be comforted and encouraged by the words from the cross from Jesus. Amen. So I put a picture up on the slide of, of Jesus looking up into heaven. There's a dove coming down, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and the words of the Father. These were, all, these were said at his baptism. There's the Father in the cloud speaking, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and the Son. And this is what the Father said. Do you remember what he said? He said, you are my Son whom I love. And what is the, the other gospel writers, what do they tell us was the next phrase? In you I am well pleased. We've heard many sermons on that, I bet. You have, you've thought about it. We usually talk about how God was saying he was pleased with Jesus because Jesus was the only person who lived an active, holy life and never sinned. And Jesus was the only one that God the Father could ever say, with you I'm well pleased. But I just want to point out, it wasn't just Jesus' actions or his righteous way of living, but he had the Father's heart right down to the core because he was the Son of God. And you notice it in the way that Jesus treated his disciples. He was full of mercy and grace. Way back in the Old Testament, when Moses said to God the Father, I don't understand you. You're, you're, you're wanting me to lead your people, but you almost killed them over the golden calf. What are you like? God told Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord. And then what were his adjectives? The compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And Jesus was just like his dad. There he went with Judas at the evening before he died and reached out to him trying to get him to turn back. There he went after Peter. He looked at Peter. We talked about that one Wednesday night when Peter denied him and then later reached out and found him and restored him. Jesus was full of compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And you probably see it the best at the cross. In the way, and I'm not talking about, we all look at the cross for grace, but in what he said in his first of seven phrases that we have recorded. And we just read it. Now they took him out. I'm going to read the, the section again where he says the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So you can just put your, rest your mind on that and meditate on it with me. When they came to the place with that awful name called the skull, because so many people were killed there by torture, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they divided up his garments, his clothing, by casting lots, because he would on earth never need them again. They were going to be sure he would finally die. There is no escape. And this was... In a place where cloth and wood were very valuable, this was the meager perk that the men who had to go through the duty of crucifying people, they got to have their clothes because they were valuable. When I was a kid, and I did go to church on Wednesday nights in the spring as a kid, listening to the seven words of the cross, this always bothered me that Jesus said, for they don't know what they're doing. I always wanted to stand up from the place I was sitting up. Are you kidding me? Really? 
don't know what they're doing? It just doesn't sound real, does it? I mean, these are the men. Remember, the, the Romans crucified people a lot. And it went on for centuries after this. These are the men that did it. They were calloused. They may very well have been the same men as you saw in the Passion of Christ movie that did the scourging. They certainly were handling a man that had been scourged. They were in the party. The men who had put the crown of thorns on his head and beat him with that reed and, and, and they were going to put him to death and they knew how it went. That's why they had gall mixed with vinegar to try to deaden it. And they were cruel and they knew, they had to know that like Pastor Darren had said last Wednesday that Pilate had six times said he's innocent. That even in this case, it wasn't just that this was one of the bad guys But Pilate, even in front of them, their governor washed his hands saying, well, you go and take him. They knew what they were doing. They were cruelly torturing an innocent man and they knew it. And I just wanted to stand up as a kid and say, don't say, Jesus, they don't know what they're doing. So what did he mean? He meant they did not know that he was saving them and they were not spurning the grace of the cross of Christ. They did not know they were killing the Son of God for the salvation of all people. They basically didn't have a clue. Uh, You kind of, if you know your Bible very well, and if you don't, I'm going to tell it to you. So you kind of hear the way God the Father was talking to Jonah the prophet at the end of the book of Jonah. Jonah wanted the whole pagan city of Nineveh to be destroyed, and that's why he didn't want to go there, because they were really bad, wicked people. They were like those Romans who loved to beat up people and torture them on the cross. And Jonah didn't want to go there and preach God to them, and so he didn't. And then God made him get swallowed by a big fish, and then what happened? Uh, He brought Jonah back to life out of that fish. He didn't die, but he vomited him up on the shore, and Jonah went to the town and he preached and so many people got saved. Jonah, you'd think, would be the happiest preacher in the world. No, he was mad because he said to God, I knew you would do something like this. You'd save them. He still was angry with them and and bitter. And God said, there's 100,000 people in Nineveh who don't know what they're doing. They haven't had a chance to hear it. And that's why I gave it to them. Jesus sounds like God the Father when he talked to Jonah. Because the Father was well pleased with Jesus, wasn't he? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I wonder if any, and we'll never know, but maybe we'll know in heaven. But I wonder if any of those Roman soldiers heard the preaching of Peter in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Or after that, as the Christians were running around talking about Jesus died for everybody. And thinking, I was the guy that held the spike while the other guy, or I, you know, hit it myself. I wonder if he forgives me. Think of the grace for someone so dastardly that he would relish or even participate in crucifixion. Think of the grace that he would feel knowing that that guy prayed for him. People that describe these crucifixions say the pain and the anger and the 
the uh, oppression that the Romans would put on people was so bad that many times the people being crucified would cuss them out while they're dying. You know, they're pinning them there and spit on them from the cross. And this guy says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had an independent love that was scandalous. You know, you think of the most angry you've ever gotten at an injustice that happened to you. Something unfair, something in a relationship that you can think of all the ways you love that person and yet they didn't do this or they did do that against you and how hurt you are. And think of how you will talk about the principle of the matter and how right it is when you're struggling with that. And think of Jesus on that cross. Independent grace. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And his son said, nobody takes my life from me, but I give it up myself. God so loved those soldiers that he wanted them to be able to survive the guilt of the heinous thing they had done and not be condemned by the devil to hell, that they would, could cling to that grace. You know that other thief on the cross that said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He figured out that if Jesus prayed for you, you're going to be all right. I remember getting a phone call one spring. Uh, she, this woman is now in heaven. Uh, she was concerned because she said, Pastor, every time I start to say my evening prayers, my mind wanders after about 30 seconds, and then I catch myself thinking about everything else, and then I fade off to sleep, and the next thing I know, it, I'm waking up the next morning, and she goes, how God must be so upset with me. And I said to her what I'm going to say to you. Your favor with God and your peace between you and the Father has nothing to do with how well you pray. It has to do with who is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. If he prayed for those dastardly guys that crucified him, he is also praying for you. But you don't have to go by that. You can go by this scripture, this next passage that's going to be up there. Paul said, when we're suffering, and you've done it, you've said it, you thought it, when, sometimes or, when three or four bad things are happening, you're thinking, what is God finally getting his justice with me about? And Paul was writing in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, to people who are suffering, and they would worry And they would even have some people, like Job's friends, say, there's something in your secret life that God is disciplining you about, or he's bringing his justice on you. And this is what Paul wrote. No, he said, let's read it out loud together. Who then is the one who condemns? Who could do this? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Think of the most critical boss, parent, grandparent, uncle, aunt, coach you've ever had and how their biting criticism rings in your heart or your ears or uh, the, the, the most sizzling email you've ever gotten, and believe me, I get them, from other people. Good thing they're not the one sitting by the Father, right? They're not. Who is? Jesus, and he's the guy that prayed for people while they're crucifying him. And it says he's still there at the right hand of God interceding for us. 
I'll tell you a second thing as a teenage boy what scared me. Because teenage boys are willful. I raised some and I was one. (laughs) When Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, this is the panic I would get at times. But I've sinned so often when I knew exactly what I was doing and even thought about how I'll just ask for forgiveness later. And certainly I should panic, right? If I would play games with God and be willful with Him, and you should too. But I want you to remember this. He didn't say, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing because then if everybody that sinned that knew what they were doing, he obviously wouldn't pray for because that's just too bad. <laughs> he was saying they weren't rejecting him as Savior at that time, Father. The Bible talks about if you, if you are living in a state of rejection of Jesus as your Savior, you're lost. But even then, if you come back... You're found. The grace is there, right? Waiting for you. So you're alive. I'm alive here on this side of heaven. If you are afraid because you were so willful, well, you should be. But I can tell you what to do with it. Confess it to God. Because He's still praying for you. And He still pleads based on His blood shed for you. Paul, in these verses, right around this verse on the screen, said, It was Christ who died for you, right? Oh, it says it in the middle of the verse. <laughs> he forgives me for that too. It's right there. Christ's the one that died for you, right? That's what he begs and pleads with the Father. So you're forgiven even for willful sin because you're here. This is in time. You can come back. Not wanting anyone to perish, the Bible says. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, I'm going to flip it on you. This independent grace is your only hope for peace with God. The one that's praying for you is Jesus, not you. But it's also your only hope for peace between you and other people. We've all lived long enough that we've been hurt. We've all known each other long enough that we might have a hurt or perceived hurt between us. People in this room, back and forth. Anybody can love someone they hardly know. (laughs) Anyone can love somebody who's good to them most of the time, but just slips up here and there. Anybody can be hurt and hold on to that and be bitter about it. That's as common as humanity. But it's supernatural. To live in real peace about somebody and as much as you live toward them independently without it being dependent upon their great apology or promise to do better or their activity that's different now. Because forgiveness is not based on them and it's not based on you. It's based on that man praying from the cross because... What God did through Jesus for us, he does in us for others. And it's about having a great big Jesus and a little bitty offender. But the more you think about the person that hurt you, you've got a great big offender and a pygmy little Jesus. 
That independent love is, I'm not saying this to scold you, I'm saying this to free you. You say, well, Jesus, he was God. Of course he was able to forgive people, but I, I, there's no way I, I could do that. Do you remember Stephen? Was he Jesus? That's not Stephen, obviously, but I want him up there. Leave him up there, Adrian. Do you remember Stephen in, the, in Acts? They were stoning him to death as he preached the gospel to them, and he said what as he's dying? Father, don't hold this sin against them. That wasn't Jesus. That was a, a, a sinner with flesh and blood. Oh, yeah, but the biblical characters, they're bigger than life. This is real. Whoa, your unbelieving heart. You've come to church enough to hear stories about people forgiving, right? Us pastors have looked them up like I looked this fella up. I didn't know who he was till I looked him up. Gordon Wilson. What an obscure man in history he must be. But he's big enough to be in Wikipedia. <laughs> Gordon Wilson. He's given a reference, a paragraph, in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, which got me to thinking about i got to find out more about this, Gordon Wilson. Born in 1927, died of a heart attack at age 67 in 1995. But in 1987, so eight years before he died of natural causes, he was, he was, he's an Irishman. He was in Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom. Remember back then, you that are my age or older, the Irish Republican Army was trying to fight as, uh, against those Catholics that were Irish because they wanted to, to bring the country back to... Actually, it's, I got my things mixed up. They wanted... The Irish Republican Army wanted the Brits out of there and they didn't want Northern Ireland to be part of the Irish... the, uh, the, the uh, United Kingdom. So they planted a bomb at a com- in, in, along the path, kind of like what happened at the Boston... Uh, marathon. They planted a bomb in a, in a backpack in a building in reading rooms right adjacent to the path where there's going to be a parade on a special day where they commemorate British, British soldiers who had lost their lives fighting for Britain in an Irish town. See, they didn't like that. They thought they were going to kill with the bomb some alumni British soldiers. But they miscalculated. And there were spectators standing along the road right there when the bomb went off. And 11 people got killed. Gordon Wilson was standing there with his daughter Marie, who was 20 at the time. And they were buried in five feet of rubble. Alive. And they had been standing next to each other, so through the rubble, they couldn't get out but he grabbed her hand and he was talking to her the whole time and she died and the last words she said were I love you dad so much father I love you so much they they dug him out five minutes later and that evening he made a statement because he was a Christian man and that's the part you got to hear because we're talking about forgiving people right And he kept this stance, because he didn't make the statement just in the shock. He kept this stance the, the rest of his days. 
I'm going to read it to you. In an interview with BBC, Wilson described with anguish his last conversation with his daughter and his feelings toward her killers. Quote, she held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those were the last words I ever heard her say. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I wish I could give you an Irish accent. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a nurse. She was a pet. I think what he means is she was docile. She's dead. She's in heaven, and we shall meet again. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. As historian Jonathan Barden recounts in that big fight for, you know, with all that revenge back and forth in Ireland, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful and emotional impact. Philip Yancey, in his book, Amazing Grace, or What's So Amazing About Grace, this is what he writes. In 1987, the IRA bomb buried Gordon Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter beneath five feet of rubble. Gordon alone survived, and he, and he forgave. He said of the bombers, I have lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. I shall pray tonight and every night that God will forgive them. Yancey says, His words caught the media's ear, and out of one man's grief, the world got a glimpse of grace. Grace is the church's great distinctive. It's the one thing the world cannot duplicate. And it's the one thing the world craves above everything else. For only grace can bring hope and transformation to a jaded world. Have you been stomping your foot wondering why, God, would you let me experience such unprecedented hurt by this person when all along it was God's plan that this person meet Jesus by hurting someone as forgiven as you? Go to that next slide. This is the, the theme of what Jesus did for us. God gives you more forgiveness than you'd ever expect. But I'm also saying he gives you more forgiveness than you'd ever expect to be able to have for another person. But you ain't Jesus and neither am I. So your prayer goes like this. Oh, dear God. I'm having such a hard time forgiving this person. But I know you want them to see your grace. And just like you used the dastardly deed of crucifixion to teach grace to everyone on Calvary's Hill, including those soldiers, I want to live above this hurt to where I can show grace to the person that hurt me. And I accept that you want me to be like you, Jesus, but I need it from you because I can't produce it in myself. You pray that prayer, and I guarantee you, God will give you more forgiveness than you'd ever expect. Just like he gave Gordon, just like he gave Stephen, 
just like he promises to give everybody else. There's only one person that can keep him from giving you that grace. And that's you. Don't let that happen. Amen.